Israel and Palestine are at war. It's October 2023, and I feel the need to add my voice here because I've been seeing a lot of propaganda online, and I know that most of these kind of social media shares come from a place of ignorance. We all want to be good, to do good, and to support the right things. But how do we measure those things? How do we prioritize them? I'm going to lay out the moral justifications for Israel and its actions because I support Israel. I support it because I believe in its project. I believe in its right to exist. I relate to it as a person who enjoys um, a certain lifestyle, who enjoys uh, openness, uh, free markets, um, you know, diverse spaces, science, education. These are parts of my value system that Israel does quite exemplify. I cannot say the same for Palestine. I was recently in Israel, Palestine, this summer. It was my third time visiting, this time with my girlfriend and parents. It was their first. And it was a great trip. It was interesting to think about this conflict while we were there because it did feel real, the threat of a Palestinian attack. When you're in a place like Israel, where security is such a concern, it really does put it on the forefront of your mind, even to Californians like us who have lived through unprecedented peace and prosperity. It's, it's quite something to, to sense that existential threat that has always existed among humans for all time and still exists in so many parts of the world. It's it's something to behold. And I have to say, like, even as a anti-authoritarian punk at heart, I can respect Israel's efforts to secure itself, to to really stabilize its sense of peace and flourishing. And I believe in that. Most fundamentally here, my moral intuitions go to Israel because I do imagine what each side would do if it could do anything. I think that's the number one thing to think about here. And it's something that Sam Harris, an intellectual idol of mine, he really hammers this home every time he speaks on the topic. Israel is a powerful country. It's powerful economically, it's powerful culturally, and it's powerful militarily. Now, we can get into why that is. We can talk about uh, ties with the USA and imperialism and all this stuff that I know it's very trendy to, to criticize. But all that aside, the fact is that Israel is strong, and it can do 
what it wants. It can do what it wants. And what does it choose to do? It chooses to firm up its borders and pursue meaningful things like vaccines and higher education and, you know, diverse youth culture, gay bars, parades, techno clubs, you know, great food. This is what Israel is known for. And as a traveler, I think this has to be really emphasized because it's easier, in my opinion, to support a place and a people that you feel welcomed into, that you can relate to, that you actually want to hang out with and have a beer with. And it's harder to support people and societies where you really feel alienated and judged and threatened and questioned. And I just challenge you, dear listener, to imagine yourself in these places. Imagine yourself in Tel Aviv, which essentially feels just like a Western or European city. It's a major city with skyscrapers, with a beachfront, with a strong middle class. And then imagine yourself in Gaza. And I know that you have an inclination to say something like, yeah, but Gaza's only like that because of Israel, or something to this effect. Well, imagine yourself then in uh, Saudi Arabia, in a city there. Or imagine yourself even, best case scenario, in the United Arab Emirates. You know, it's the most advanced part of the Middle East, broadly. It's very rich. Or Qatar, or Oman, or even in Lebanon, where... Lebanon is not a Muslim country, like many of these others are. But even in Lebanon, there is strife, there is tension, there is a a religiosity and lifestyle that is trickier for most of us Westerners to relate to. Now, maybe you exotify places, you like to feel, you know, alien, you like to feel a sense of novelty, and that's fair. I've been there for sure. But for most of us, I think when we do travel and when we do relate to one another, we want to feel grounded in similar cultural uh, touchstones, similar etiquette, similar rituals. And I think that this is lost among people who promote Palestinian freedom. I don't think that people really understand what Palestinians are about. I don't think they're very well-traveled. I think that there's just this knee-jerk reaction to support the perceived victim. So I want to lay out the history here and also the religion and how these two religions contrast. And I think I'll start there. Let's think about Judaism for a second. It's very, very old. It's an ancient religion. Um, Biblical times put us, you know, in like the 13th century BC. So the Israelites go way back. And they describe themselves as the chosen people. They are an extremely devout sect, uh, depending on what kind of uh, Jews you're thinking about. You know, I've lived 
in major cities that have a Jewish presence, specifically New York City, but also in Berlin, where the Jewish absence was very felt. And in in Germany, or sorry, in New York, in Williamsburg, we have Hasidic Jewish communities that are quite foreign to me, quite hard to understand. But one thing I do know is that it's a close-knit, almost uh, introverted or shy community. To become Jewish yourself, it's not enough to even marry in. You have to go through a major process. And that says something to me. You know, this is like a real club, you know? And I can respect that. I respect elite clubs. And I would like the right to found my own sort of elite uh, cadre of, of friends. So that's meaningful to me. And you contrast that with Islam, which is the second fastest religion in the world, growing religion in the world. Um, it spreads quite like wildfire, or at least it has done in the past. Um, we'll get to that historically. Uh, it is actively about propagandizing and proselytizing its message. You know, definitely in Berlin, I felt a presence of Islam very, very much every single day. And of course, just like all groups of people, we tend to in-group. And so it's not like um, I, as a as a expat, was being converted somehow. That's not my point. My, my point is just that it's interesting to compare how one religion spreads as intensely as possible and the other one shies away and uh you know groups together tightly as much as possible and then you think about exiting the religion you know in islam they have this word apostate which means like an ex-muslim and apostates are reviled in the muslim world it is forbidden to leave the religion. It is anathema. You might as well be deported. And many people are. Many people leave their countries of origin if they leave the religion. And you look at these numbers, you know, like if you Google uh, the populations of these Muslim countries and how much of that population identifies as Muslim, it's 99%. You know, it's like at least 90% of people are Muslim. You do not get that in Christian societies, but you definitely don't get that in like, even in Israel, right? So let's, let's compare it to Judaism. Almost every Jew you and I know is secular. They don't even necessarily believe in God. You know, there's the Hasids that we talked about, um, very strict fundamentalist Jews exist, obviously. Then you have conservative Jews who still might wear some garb and celebrate the high holidays. But the vast majority of Jewish people are normies who, you know, happen to have a Jewish name. They're ethnically Jewish, perhaps. They have some traditions. But by and large, they don't care about the religious aspects of Judaism. Now, to be fair, when I was speaking about Muslims, I'm sure that it varies wildly how much people really practice the religion, but it is certainly more than most Jews practice their religion. So the sense of like exiting and entering this religion, I think I just, it's very important to note that. 
and it grafts on to the geopolitics. There are Muslims living in Israel. You can be Muslim and live in Israel. It's fine. Are there Jews living in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> no, there aren't. There are not. Uh, in the Muslim world, it is very difficult and likely dangerous to be Jewish. You know, even traveling again, like if you have, if you visit Israel, you'll be given a little card or a piece of paper in lieu of a stamp in your passport. And that's because they know that if they stamp your passport with the Israeli, you know, visit, you will not even be allowed into many countries. That's how seriously it's taken in the Muslim world to be associated with Jews. So just the very nature of these religions, you know, like Judaism is a very academic religion. If you visit Jerusalem and you go to the Western Wall, you will see the wildest scene of hardcore nerds behaving so oddly in deference and absolute respect in a sort of like, you know, hallucinatory thrill of some sort, just bowing and muttering to themselves these religious texts. It is an extremely nerdy academic religion. And you think about Islam, I mean, Islam is so big and so diverse in terms of the world, obviously, that it's hard to specify, you know, how fervent it's taken and what that ferventness turns into. But we all know what in our minds may, might flash in as a fervent zealot of Islam. It's like a, a suicide bomber, right? It's like somebody that is so believing that they're going to paradise with their 72 virgins that they will blow themselves up. And this is by design. This is exported out of Saudi Arabia to indoctrinate people into these crazy brands of Islam. And I think most of us Westerners like to imagine that this is just a very, very tiny subset of Muslims. And it is, you know, it's certainly not the majority of Muslims, certainly not. But there are these concentric circles of normie believers who might not, you know, blow up the World Trade Center or blow up um, a cafe in Paris or crash their car in Berlin or, you know, go into the Sahel of Africa. And, you know, <laughs> Africa is the number one place where terrorist attacks and jihad do take place right now. You know, most people aren't going to do that necessarily, but a wildly disproportionate number of people do that. Young men, you know, young kids are trained to think this way. There's video footage of Palestinians literally being taught to hate Jews and to kill. It's sad, you know, of course, not all kids are getting brainwashed. And of course, this is like a very complex story. So I'm not trying to paint with too broad of a brush, but I'm just trying to compare the zealotry here. What does it look like when people become animated to an, to a super extra level with Judaism versus Islam? So these are major differences in the religion that 
mean something to me, right? I look at these two things and I think, wow, I think I'd much rather study or not study. What's that? I'd rather befriend somebody that is hardcore into Judaism than hardcore into Islam. And look, I'm going to risk sounding Islamophobic in this podcast. I'll admit it. But I have my reasons for what I say and what I'm thinking. You know, like these, I'm not making stuff up here. And um, if I do, I apologize because I would happily backtrack much of uh, what you might count as irrational or unfair. I do want to be fair here. So let's get into the actual history because a major thing that I'm seeing is a sort of right to the land on both sides. And I just, I was wondering myself, like, who does have a right to this land? What does that even mean to have a right to land? Like, I will tell you, I'll, I'll again lay out my my biases here. I'm not a fan of land acknowledgements. You know, it's this trendy fad right now where if you're really a good and virtuous person, you can signal that by mentioning before anything else what land you stand on and who, what native tribe was there first, right? So in the U.S., which was certainly taken from the Indians, the native peoples here, you know, it's it's fashionable to, you know, pour one out for them, to acknowledge them. I find this really pointless because it doesn't matter anymore who was here, you know, 600 years ago. It's not relevant to me, and it's not relevant to, you know, the city of Los Angeles. I do think about, right, like in New York, and even growing up in California, like studying New York City and Manhattan, it's like a famous story that the pilgrims coming from Europe, they like swindled the native tribe on Manhattan and like traded that whole island for like a handful of jewelry. And this is like, if true, it's obviously terrible, right? I mean, for like the white man to invent something like law and say, oh, this paper, if you sign it, that means that this is ours now. And now we get to slay you and ethnically cleanse you from this land. Like, yeah, that's not cool. I wouldn't do that. We have a, uh, we have the, <laughs> we have the benefit of historical perspective to study that now. So I'm not going to sit here and say, like, whoever was there first, like, that should be their land. You know, like, I don't believe that. So I just want to put that out there because I'm going to prove here that the Jewish people do have a fair claim on this land. But it's not just because they were there first. Okay. But how first were they there? (laughs) Let's get into this history for a second. So going back to biblical times, like in the 13th century BC, the Jewish people fled the kingdom of Egypt and they settled in the Levant, which is like modern day Israel, Palestine, this, uh, you know, eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And that land was referred to by the Egyptians as Peleset or something like that. And the Assyrian kingdom that followed called it something similar. And the Jews just lived there for like thousands of years, like 1300 years until the Roman empire. So this is like when our calendar starts at like year zero. So the Roman empire, it spreads and takes over like 
all of Southern Europe and then like all of the, uh, the Southern edge of the Mediterranean Sea and also of course the Eastern edge. So the Roman empire takes over the Levant and they call it Judea. And the way empires usually work is like, you know, Alexander the Great or somebody they'll charge through and they'll probably, you know, slaughter a fair number of people and they'll, they'll claim the land and demand that like, usually like the way that it works is like, you just demand that the farmers make food for your people and pay a tax and stuff like that, you know, but like by and large, your life as a common person doesn't change drastically except insofar as it does where you have to like make more food or you'll be whipped or something like this. But anyways, um, the Roman empire takes over. They call the land Judea. There are a series of revolts by the Jewish people. Um, they do, uh, effectively change the name of it to Syria, Palestina. So now we're like beginning to see this kind of formation of the name. And they're basically left alone. Like they're not, wiped out from the land they're not ethnically cleansed right they're just um ruled over by the romans and then by the byzantines which is like the eastern roman empire so that comes next and the byzantines it's kind of the same deal they're now just calling the land palestina and this lasts for hundreds of years where it's still jewish land it's just kind of like ruled over by these empires from europe and then come comes Islam. So basically the story there is that Prophet Muhammad, he's born in Mecca, which is modern day Saudi Arabia, and Islam is birthed in like the year 600 or something. And it is founded on this principle of spreading and taking over the world. That is in the texts. It's central to the religion that it spreads and takes over. It's a warring, it's a religion of war. I'm sorry to put it like that, but I'm not buying this religion of peace bullshit. You know, like there's just so much obvious in, our, in your and my lives that it's not a religion of peace. So I think this is like a real problem. It's a propaganda topic that people think of this as a religion of peace. And there's something there that I'll get to in a second. I mean, basically to cut to the chase. Yeah, it's a religion of peace once the whole world submits to islam then it is a peaceful world but you have to get there through holy war or jihad so jihad starts in 630 630 ad it takes over the levant and unlike the roman and byzantine empires they really do kind of oust the israelites the jews are kind of scattered here but the muslims don't really do anything so they rule the land starting in like in the seventh century and it's ruled by a series of caliphates, right? The Rashiduns, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the Fatimids. And these are basically just like kingdoms or like a certain ruler, his lifetime, you know, this kind of thing. And maybe his like kin. So these families rule over the land and it's like that for a few hundred years, like until basically the middle ages. And this is where we have the Crusades. Now, I grew up, and I think most of you probably agree, we're taught that the Crusades are like like the Christian version of Holy War, where it's like, oh, well, if you think Islam is a religion of war, what about Christianity and the Crusades, right? 
I mean, I think most of us understand that Christianity actually spreads through peaceful means by and large through missionaries. Like that's still even a thing now, you know, like if you look at like places like Korea or the Philippines, it's not like they were like taken over with the sword. Right. Um, they were taken over through missionary and missionary work. Well, Philippines was kind of taken over by the sword too, but be that as it may, like Christianity isn't the same warring, uh, doesn't have the same warring basis to it as Islam does. And crusades are a case in point. So the crusades were basically a reaction by the Catholic church coming out of Rome that this holy land should be taken back. You know, this land that the Jews called home, you know, it's been known as a lot of things, you know, Canaan, the promised land, the land of Israel, and certainly the holy land. And it's also the birthplace of Christianity, right? This is like the land of Jesus too. It is not the land of Muhammad, but it was the land of the Jews and of Jesus who was Jew. So basically Europe gets like its shit together and it's like, you know what, let's go and send however many armies and troops that we can to take back Israel. And they do it. You know, it's a lot of French armies and some Italians and whatever else. And this is actually a series of wars. There's like, you know, multiple crusades. But for 200 years, they succeeded. And this is when we have the actual kingdom of Jerusalem. So it is Jewish in a sense. It's like made, again, the holy land, the home of these major religions. And that lasts for 200 years. But then it falls again to Muslims. And when it falls this time, it actually becomes majority Muslim. Until then, like Muslims weren't really doing anything with this land. They weren't making a major city there. There was nothing there, you know. And again, to remind you, this is just like inhospitable desert. So it's not like they have a major reason to do that. But now they do. And basically Arabs rule this land until another Muslim group comes in and takes over. And to call this group Muslim is not quite right because this group is the Ottomans who are a Turkic people. And they come in around 1500. They come in from the Far East, you know, like modern Mongolia area and, you know, like Genghis Khan and stuff. And these guys come in on horseback and they just absolutely dominate the area. And they rule it for like 400 years. Um, This Turkic people take over much of northern Arabia. They don't go go all the way into the peninsula, but they take over the Levant and they take over Anatolia and they take over uh, Constantinople, most famously, and turn it into Istanbul. And they rule it until modern times, until World War I. And that's where things really get interesting in our story. So here we go. Basically, the Ottoman Empire falls along with all empires. Like, empire stops being a a big deal, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Prussian Empire. Like, these all kind of crumble by this time when it's time to modernize, essentially. Uh, The Great War tears Europe apart, you know, fucks up everybody. And coming out of this war are these peace treaties and this sense of nationalism. That's like the biggest takeaway here at this time in in history. Nationalism takes rise. So no longer do we like prioritize major empires that rule over all these different kinds of people. Instead, this idea is like, 
every nation or people group should have a state. And that's essentially what nationalism is. Um, obviously, there's more to it. But basically, the idea is like, well, maybe Germans should just stick to Germany. Austrians, likewise, if they are different from Germans. But Hungary should certainly not be a part of that, right? And coming out of this, like, the Arabs also wanted their own land because they've now also been ruled over by the Turks who have now been basically pushed just into Anatolia, which was a lot more land than they were originally given. And I'll put that aside because I have my own feelings about how much land is Turkey now versus Kurdistan or Armenia or Greece. But anyways, the Arabs were enemies of the Turks and the Brits and the French, who were kind of like the winners of World War One, they were now kind of tasked with how to deal with all this land, how to like parse it out among the peoples of the Middle East. And they did not do a good job, quite famously. So this is obviously where we can really blame um, imperialism and ignorance and, you know, nefarious goals of perhaps the Europeans to carve it up in such a way that it you know, sows division and strife forever. Um, yeah, these borders do that. They cut through sects and groups of people. Iraq is kind of cobbled together with Shia from the east and Sunni from the south and then Kurds to the north. And it's kind of like a mess on purpose, one could argue. But it's similar to how, you know, Germany was cut up after World War II. You know, like the winners kind of, just divide it up amongst themselves. That's kind of how war goes throughout history. So basically the Arabs think that they deserve all this land because again, they had ruled it for like a thousand years, right? With various caliphates. So they thought they were owed the Levant. But, you know, during this nationalism movement, Jews were being persecuted. You know, it wasn't, obviously that came to a head in World War II with the Nazis who slaughtered 6 million of them. But it was already a problem. Like, Jewish hatred was a thing. Anti-Semitism goes way back. It's not like Hitler invented that. So anti-Semitism, along with other factors like the rise of nationalism, you know, that's where this idea called Zionism came from. So, like, basically people started thinking, maybe the Jewish people should have their own state, like, officially, or at least, like, a homeland. And so that's kind of where the idea started. And then basically the Brits and the French, they kind of thought, yeah, Jews should have their homeland. And maybe Israel is a real thing that should exist. And the Arabs also maybe should have something, but um, we don't really know how to handle that. And so they gaffed it. They made this thing called Mandatory Palestine. Now, Mandatory Palestine was basically this UN thing. It was actually the League of Nations back then. The League of Nations said, okay, there's this land in the Levant, you know, it's like, you know, not all of Jordan and not all of Syria, but like tucked in there on the coast, you know, what we now know as modern, now know as modern Israel Palestine. This is called mandatory Palestine. That doesn't mean that it's a country called Palestine for Arabs. That just means that it's this place that we need to deal with and we probably want to carve it up again and make sure that there's a Jewish state as well as maybe an Arab state. So that's where real the real conflict begins. And it's like that until World War II. And again, Hitler, you know, slays all these Jews and it kind of becomes obvious like, oh shit, we probably should have 
ensured that there was a Jewish land by now. Now it's really clear that the Jewish people need a home state. So we're going to make it now in the Levant, and it's going to be called Israel. So that's what happened. You know, basically, Israel was drawn onto a map, and it was kind of these weird, messy borders. It wasn't kind of, it wasn't clear exactly why it was exactly like this, but basically the people that drew it up thought, well, we can't give them this entire thing because Arabs also claim it as their land, so we'll give parts of it to the Arabs and then parts of it to the Jews. And the parts that they were giving to the Arabs learned or took on the name Palestinians. But until then, there was no such thing as Palestinians. There was never a country called Palestine, and there still isn't. And you can look this up on Wikipedia. I was even trying to figure out, like, where does the right to the land for Palestinians come from? Like, literally, there's no history of Palestine before World War I, because it was the Ottoman Empire before that, and it was just part of these Muslim caliphates before that. So this word comes from the Romans and the Byzantines, or the Egyptians before that, if you like. And it just refers to a place. It doesn't refer to a people. So it's a word that basically just means this land. And it's land that Jews have called home for thousands of years. So the Palestinian cause is is funny to try and parse because you wonder... Well, what do you mean? Like, from river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What does that mean? Like, what it means is that it will be free of Jews. It means Palestine will be Arab. That's what the literal translation of that out of Arabic means. So when you say free Palestine, what you're really saying is free this land of Palestine of Jews. And if you ask Palestinians who believe in the cause, they will likely tell you that. It's not something that they're shy about. In fact, it's so confusing to me that like modern progressives and leftists are so adamant to defend and mince words here. You know, like on one hand, we're so sure that, you know, January 6th was a clear insurrection, even if people aren't admitting it. That's clearly what it is. Or we're so sure that Brett Kavanaugh, you know, sexually assaulted this woman, even if the details aren't clear. We're so sure about this and that. And yet when Palestinian terrorists literally tell you what they're wanting to do, we think, no, that's not what you mean. You're only saying that because, you know, you're put upon and fraught because of Israel and their imperialism. You know, you don't really want to kill all Jews. It's so funny how that works, you know? I think the way that our minds work morally is that once we have it in our heads that somebody is a victim, it excuses so much, right? Like, oh, if the villain's backstory is sad enough, I can sympathize and suddenly all their, you know, terrors are fair enough, or something like that. I'm just not buying it. I think that people's hardcore zealous beliefs and their animosity toward other people are very real, and they do inform their actions. And if Palestinians could have their way, they would 
destroy Israel. They would wipe it off the face of the earth. I think it's pretty clear that that's what they want to do. Do they all want to do that? Well, it's easy for us to think like, it's just the young men. It's just the like, you know, these hardcore guys that are poisoned with hatred that want to do that. The young girls and the grandmothers, they don't want to do that. Look, maybe you're right. Maybe they're innocent civilians who we should really be mourning right now. And fair enough. Like if that's where your moral allegiances go, fair enough. But I guess my point is like, what does it have to do with anything? Right? I mean, fine. You can spend your time mourning the people that are suffering as victims on that side. I think it probably would make sense to mourn the other side's victims too, if you're going to do that. But I just don't know where it gets us to think, oh, Israel's reaction is outsized. They're attacking civilians. That's not cool. What's not cool is for your literal existence to constantly be threatened strongly, vocally, loudly, constantly. Is Israel doing that to Palestinians? No. In fact, Israel has offered peace multiple times, multiple times to Palestinians. Peace accords have taken place six times since 1947, when Israel won its first of many, many wars in which they were defenders of the land. Israel does not go out and start wars. Israel does not go out and pick fights with its neighbors. Its neighbors pick fights with it. Egypt, Jordan, Palestine, like it's other places that are saying, fuck you, Jews, we don't want you here. And Israel saying, you know what, if that's how you feel, we're going to kill you and stay here. And I think it's their right to do that. In fact, I support them doing that. I think it's better for the world that Israel exists. I think it's by far the most developed country in the Middle East. I think compared to anything like Dubai or Qatar, it is better because it's not pure opulence. It's not pure oil money showing off. It's not excessive, you know, flashy, gaudy style of riches and excess paired with a crazy fundamentalist religion. It is modern world's niceties and technologies with a very humble religion by and large there's one jewish country there's like 20 muslim countries like i'm supposed to feel bad for palestinians because they don't have a country you're arabs you lived among other arabs in the ottoman empire you're you have other arab brethren in egypt and in jordan and in syria and in lebanon and in Saudi Arabia, and beyond, like so many Arabs, go live there. Why not? Oh, they don't like you either because you're pestilent and aggressive and toxic? Interesting. Really interesting. And you want a state, but you don't accept any of the states being offered to you. You don't accept an official Gaza or West Bank state. You just keep saying no over and over because what you really want is to kill all Jews. That's what you really want. I'm sorry, but that is not moral. That is not defensible. And I don't side with that at all. 
And if some civilians die because of that, so be it. I'm sorry. Just like in Nazi Germany, if some innocent people die, so be it. Like, you have to stop waging war. Okay, your people have to stop waging war. I'm sorry that you uh, voted against it and you don't want to do it. I'm sorry. That sucks. You're a refugee. Go somewhere. Seriously. But I'm not going to sit here and defend the Gaza Strip, which has been ruled by Hamas. Definitely an evil terrorist group for the last 20 years. Israel has not intervened. It's not Israel's fault that Gaza sucks. So that's it. And I just don't understand why so many of my peers in Europe and the Americas hate Israel and side with Palestine. It does not make sense to hate Israel and side with Palestine. It does not make sense. The only way in which that makes sense is if you have an extremely superficial understanding of this where you simply graft on the identity politics of our modern times which are bullshit by the way and you graft that on to this case in which the Palestinians are black and the Israelis are white and white people suck and black people are victims therefore you support Palestinians that is such a terrible analysis so Let's drop that, shall we? And yes, we can all agree that it is really terrible that water sources are cut off and that hospitals get bombed. It's terrible. It's also war. And why is there war? Who started this war? Who has perpetuated it for the last 70 years? These are important questions. And to finalize this, I want to go back to this land rights thing. Israel doesn't deserve Israel because it lived there, you know, 1,300 years ago, 13,000 years ago. It deserves Israel because it's built Israel into what it is today. Just like Manhattan is a major city with intensely important financial and cultural uh, infrastructure, that's a real thing. You know, the Algonquins or the... The Mohawks can't just say that that's theirs now. That's not how it works. The Palestinians don't just get to say, oh, yeah, um, everything on Rothschild Street and Allenby Road, like, those are ours now. No, you didn't make those. Israelis made those. These are real places that are cool and functioning and good. And that's why it's theirs. That's why, in my opinion, it's theirs. Because Israel made Tel Aviv. And Jerusalem, which is ancient, Israel is sharing it with you. Israel is literally saying you can have this section of Jerusalem and we'll have that section. Like literally it's being offered to you and you don't accept it because you want all of it and you just want to kill all the Jews. I'm not buying it. I'm not on your side for that. That's fucked up. I'm on the side of actual peace being offered and flourishing happening, which happens in Israel. It happens on one side of this conflict and it's Israel's side. So that's it guys. That's my moral justification for Israel's right to exist and for Israel's right to defend itself and for Israel's right to see this war through all the way. And if it wipes Palestine off the face of the earth and Israel takes over all that land, 
that was once thought of as Palestine? So be it. Palestine has had its chance to be a real country for 70 plus years, and it's not wanted to do it. So what can we say at this point? You know, if you don't accept properly defined borders, what can you expect but settlements? I'm not saying I support the settlements. I'm not, I don't support the religiosity, the far right of Israel. But if that's what happens, like, then sign a fucking peace treaty where you take over the West Bank. That is still on the table. Israel is still offering that. They will move out of all of the settlements and give you the West Bank if you sign for it and stop trying to fight them. I would. I would take that deal. Or globally speaking, give it to Israel. Let Israel make way more out of it than you would. Or even that Egypt or Jordan would. Like Israel would do way more with the Gaza Strip and the West Bank than Egypt and Jordan would. That's my guess. I could be wrong. Egypt and Jordan have their absolutely valid uh, cultural landmarks and travel destinations, and that's fair enough if you want to go there. I can tell you for sure that it's not nearly as pleasant as going to Israel, especially if you're a woman. But hey, if you want to support what you think of as, as the underdog, and you think for some silly reason that Islam is the underdog, go on ahead, but you are wrong. Muslims outnumber Jews like 20 to 1 in the Middle East and globally. So I am on the side of Western values, Enlightenment values, gay rights, women's rights, higher education, science. And if you're into those things, you should be supporting Israel too. All right, guys. Until next time. Ciao.